the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And he's here to say good afternoon. Welcome. It is the Wednesday February 19th edition of Lifeline. Hope you're doing well and uh, glad that you are spending some time with us on the program tonight. We've got an exciting show for you a little bit later on. Our good friend Reggie Littlejohn, founder and president of Women's Rights Without Frontiers, will join us. An amazing new film called One Child Nation just won a big award at Sundance Film Festival in the fall of last year, um, getting a great deal of critical acclaim and particularly opening eyes to the danger of China's one-child policy, which has morphed into now the danger of China's two-child policy. We'll talk about that when Reggie Littlejohn joins us a little bit later on in tonight's program. It's not very often that I find myself not making it into the studio and ready to be on the air on time for the show after 30 years. The habit of being here at 5.05 is kind of ingrained into my um, body clock, so to speak. But today, almost missed it because I couldn't put down the book by our first guest tonight. Let me set it up for you. Competition, rivalry, certainly one-umpenship, is the meat and mire out of which politics is born. The struggle to beat your competitor for the nomination and whipping your competitor to the election is not just for the political appointees or folks that are running for office, but it's true, too, for the assistants, the advisors, and deputies, as much as it is for the politicians themselves. The fight to make it to the White House doesn't end at the White House, whether you're the president or working for the president. Much of this has to do with not just the management style of the one that is seated inside of the Oval Office, as much as it has to do with the way in which people interact serving the president in the White House. New book out called Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. And joining me today is former senior White House aide to President Bush from 2005 to 2007, Deputy Secretary for Health and Human Services 2007 to 2009, current CEO of the American Health Policy Institute, best-selling author, frequent guest on, you name it, CNN, Fox, CNBC, and others. Tevi Troy joins us. And Tevi, great to have you on the program. Hey, thanks for having me on. Thanks for the flattering introduction. And I'm sorry that Fight House slowed you down and made you almost miss coming. Oh, oh. <laughs> almost. I had looked at the clock and said, oh, i got to put this thing down. i got a show to do. It, it really is fascinating because, you know, we, we get imagery coming out of news reporting in terms of what the atmosphere must be inside of a White House. 
and kind of draw our own conclusions. And certainly treatment of the current occupant uh, has, has painted a picture of, you know, great struggle in times of turmoil uh, amongst, uh, you know, political appointments and so forth, working inside that building. But as your book exposes, uh, while this may be true of the Trump administration, it by no means is limited to the Trump administration. And if anything, some of the past administrations and ones which clearly erroneously some of us thought must have been just peaceful, tranquil places with a strong leader in charge, everybody gathered around the table in peace and harmony. Just not so. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, that uh, some of these administrations that we thought were placid were, were not so. And what I found in White House, and I'm a presidential historian by training, this is my fourth book on the presidency, and as you said, I did work in the White House. So I have a lot of background in the White House, and I found all these stories on this subject of infighting that I had never heard of. And some of them were just tremendous stories, really exciting stories, petty stories, salacious stories. And so I was glad to have this opportunity to bring them all in in a book that really people have not heard this story before. No, this is very true. And and certainly to sort of set the stage here, uh, for the benefit of listeners, this notion of having big groups and lots of infighting going on, I mean, it it probably goes all the way back to the times of Washington uh, when the the leadership of the first administration was coming together. But it really seems as if it it got a a, a bit of a kickstart um, just heading into the time of FDR. Prior to um, President Roosevelt, usually it was sort of the cabinet, a very small White House staff. FDR began to sort of uh, uptick that pretty significantly so. And by the time we get into modern times, we find White House staffs of not dozens of people, but literally hundreds of people. And, of course, you've got to imagine that there are rivalries and people that are struggling to get attention and appointments and who wants to be, uh, you know, teacher's pet. The fights from <laughs> the fights from elementary school now move into the White House, don't they? You know, that's a really good point about the growth of government, especially in the Roosevelt administration, led to the need for the president to have his own people. And in fact, there was the Brownlow Commission in 1936 that looked at the situation and said the president needs help, the famous four-word conclusion. And it called for assistance to the president with, quote, a passion for anonymity. And so these people, White House aides as we know them today, started to come into the White House. The passion for anonymity seems to have gone out the window not long after Kennedy became president, because he had the rise of the celebrity aid. But having these people inside the White House with pro- public profiles and jobs that are in some ways competing with cabinet secretaries led to a lot of strife and infighting, and it's, um, it's a dynamic that continues through to today, but it's happened in every administration since we really had the advent of the White House staff. That, uh, Truman was the first president to enter with the White House staff. Part of this, of course, if a psychologist were to sort of pick this apart, would say, well, it's logical for people that that make it to that level as either an appointment to a particular position or simply getting hired because you knew somebody who recommended you, that the sense of wanting to be first loyal to the president and then jockeying for a sense of being who's going to get the label most loyal, who is the president's uh, ear or uh, who is the most closest to the president in terms of the degree of, of being able to influence him, it's kind of human nature, isn't it, in, in a sense, for some of this dynamic to take place? Oh, yeah, of course. And, and every organization has infighting and strife. You, you just don't have... That is definitely human nature. But what I detail in the White House is, first of all, people care a lot more about infighting at the White House than they do at, let's say, 3M or you know, some name your generic company. But 
the other thing is that because of the specific nature of the White House, people thrown together a very short time. There's a time-limited aspect to the administration. The people here are kind of alpha, alpha males and females these days. And the implications of the decisions they make are of national import. So you bring all that together, and you have a really explosive environment, and also just something that's of more interest to the general reader, and that's what I was trying to get at in the White House. Well, I think you've certainly succeeded in that, although you have completely busted my sense of the way in which I had sort of idealized what goes on in the White House, which means I've simply watched too much West Wing, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's your first mistake. Uh, we, we won't have time to break through at all because obviously folks really need to do what I was doing today, pick up the copy of the book for yourself because you're going to find one of those amazing page turners. Um, but let, let's talk about a couple of the administrations that you highlight. One that I found interesting because I, I knew it was sort of around the periphery that there was not a lot of love lost um, during the Kennedy administration uh, between LBJ, then the vice president and um, the president's brother, who was also the uh, attorney general, Robert Kennedy. Um, But boy, some of the stories that you reveal inside of this new book, Fight House, really demonstrates how much disdain these two men had for each other and how much spillover really occurred inside that building. Oh, yeah, they really hated each other. And there's a great line that I have in Fight House from Robert F. Kennedy's own father where he said, Bobby's my boy. When he hated you, you stayed hated. <laughs> and, just, and just as Bobby Kennedy was a, a good hater, so was Lyndon Johnson. He wasn't one to forget a slight. And the first time they met, Kennedy slighted him. He refused to shake Johnson's hand. And Johnson, who was majority leader at the time when Kennedy was a relatively lowly Senate staffer, just stood over him, towered over him with that, that, that six-foot-three height, and just glowered at him until Kennedy relented and shook his hand reluctantly. And they sort of played off, too, the, the sense of, you know, Southern Democrat in the case of, of LBJ being from Texas. And then you've got, you know, the, the Harvard-educated Eastern Seaboard um, style of the Kennedys. And at one point inside the book, you talk about how, um, as Jack Kennedy was formulating his staff, he brought in certain key people, um, part of that group being labeled as the Irish Mafia and the rest as the intellectuals. Tell us a bit about that. Um, the, the intellectuals were the people that Johnson dismissively referred to as the Harvards. And each, each side in this dispute had nicknames for the other. The nickname that B- the Bobby Kennedy set had for Johnson was uh, Rufus Cornpone. Oh. So uh, they, they really didn't like each other. But yeah, K- Kennedy uh, brought these two groups together of the Irish Mafia po- politicos from the Boston area who knew how to get him elected and were very smart at uh, running a, a national campaign that was able to galvanize the, uh, the Democratic Party and bring together its various factions in, in favor of Kennedy. Uh, at the same time, you had these intellectuals who gave Kennedy an air of something a little more, that he wasn't just a, a, a you know, small-town Irish politician, but he was someone who had written a Pulitzer Prize-winning book, although he didn't actually read, write it, as I, I just described in the White House, and he was someone who went to Harvard and hung out with the smart set, and he was going to bring new ideas to the White House. So Kennedy brilliantly melded those two groups that don't seem like they go together 
And this is one occasion in Fight House where there was a predicted fight and they actually didn't fight. Those two groups actually were able to work it out well together. But certainly, as we suggested, though, there were underlying rivalries that really kind of boiled down below the surface. And I suppose um, up until Jack Kennedy's untimely death in November of 63, there was kind of a lid on that. Once Jack was taken out of the picture, uh, I suppose it was a foregone conclusion that uh, Robert Kennedy's longevity in the White House was uh, was done for. Yeah, well, well, Robert F. Kennedy was um, you know, obviously the Attorney General, but he's working for Lyndon Johnson after Kennedy's death, and you have this weird circumstance where they have a yelling match not long after the first cabinet meeting in which Kennedy supposedly was intentionally late to the meeting to show up with Johnson. Then they have this long fight in, in the Oval Office. And then Kennedy doesn't talk to Johnson for over two months, which is really astounding. I mean, I, you know, there are people I go to go without talking for two months, but they're not my attorney general while I'm the president. So that, that was just an amazing, amazing fact that the two of them didn't talk for that long period of time. Uh, they really did not like each other. This book, Fight House, really opens up the door into the interesting rivalries that in some cases boiled just below the surface and in other cases pretty publicly boiled over and and, and potentially even impacted policy decisions. We'll talk about that coming up after a quick timeout. With us today, best-selling presidential historian, the author of a brand-new book called Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Tevi Troy is with us today. We'll take a time. I'll come back to more of our discussion as Lifeline continues. 518, let's slip over to the KFAX Traffic Center and get you an update on the Wednesday ride home. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Former Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Services and former senior White House aide in the Bush administration, political historian Tevi Troy with us today. His new book, Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. And, and certainly we can see some of this, Tevi, being personality-driven. Uh, part of that, no doubt, due to the management style of the occupant of the Oval Office. But I suppose, too, and, and maybe we've seen a lot of this in the current administration, where there is a sense of friction set up between the the new political appointees and a lot of the career establishment people that just have different styles and different ways of doing things. Well, that's certainly true, and that's an issue in every administration, Democrat or Republican, that there are these uh, disagreements between the career staff and the political staff. But what I'm really trying to get out, and White House is a little different, I'm really trying to get at the disagreements among people on the same team. That these are people, political people, who come in with the president, who are supposed to be on board with whatever the president is trying to accomplish, and these people are at each other's throats. And I just think that's a fascinating dynamic, and that's really what I'm trying to capture in White House. Well, I got to tell you, what you really blew up for me was my entire image of the internal workings of the Jimmy Carter administration. Now, <laughs> Carter certainly not known for having a stellar presidency, to be sure, but you get the sense of this easygoing guy and probably figure, you know, uh, feet up on the desk and, uh, um, you know, an easy guy to get along with and certainly creating a very uh, lighthearted, laid-back environment. But anything but the truth. In fact, I I had forgotten about the fact that Carter, uh, wanting to sort of distance himself from anything that looked like the previous administration of Richard Nixon, uh, never had a chief of staff 
And as a result, he ended up also not only trying to run the White House and run the country, uh, but it sounded like his ability to sort of step back from micromanaging certain details not only repeatedly got in his own way, but created a tremendous sense of consternation amongst many of the people that worked for him. Oh, yeah. Carter was definitely a micromanager. He micromanaged the use of the White House tennis court. Uh, one of his cabinet secretaries accused him of being the highest paid assistant secretary of housing that the uh, government has ever had. <laughs> and it was, it was be, he just couldn't let go. And, and I think that was a problem. There's a great story that Ronald Reagan in 1980 says that he has a dream where Jimmy Carter comes to him and says, Ron, why do you want to take my job? And Ronnie says, I don't want to take your job, Jimmy. I want to be president. <laughs> <laughs> very, very apt, and I can almost see Reagan saying something just like that. Although, interestingly enough, uh, for a man that many of us highly respect um, as president of the United States, eight-year term, uh, a guy that helped to contribute to um, certainly the collapse of communism, uh, and yet there were interesting rivalries that took place even inside of the Reagan White House, up to and including, apparently, as you outline inside of your new book, Fight House, um, some friction that came as a result of very different management styles, not necessarily between the president and the chief of staff, but between the president and his wife, Nancy. Well, yeah, I mean, you had Don Regan, who was the second chief of staff in the Reagan administration, and he was a former Marine and former chairman of Merrill Lynch. He'd been treasury secretary in the first term. And he butted heads with Nancy Reagan because of the different ways they viewed that they should run the, the White House for President Reagan himself. And Nancy did not much care for Reagan, and she said he's pretty good at the chief part, but not so much at the of staff part, which I think is a great line. And then there's one incident in which Reagan hangs up on Nancy Reagan. And Jim Baker, who was the previous chief of staff and knew what the relationship between the president and Mrs. Reagan was, that that's not just a firing offense, that's a hanging offense. Yeah, 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 no doubt, no doubt about it. Hey, one other I'll have you mention before our time expires. Um, I mentioned the Nixon administration. Um, a, a lot of us remember certainly Henry Kissinger as Secretary of State, but he wasn't always in that role. And there was a tremendous sense of friction that Kissinger's presence in the White House created not only during his tenure as Secretary of State, but even prior to that. Oh, yeah, Kissinger started out as a national security advisor and kind of an unknown figure and certainly not one who was really well-known to Nixon. Better known to Nixon was William Rogers, who was the Secretary of State and had previously been Attorney General under Eisenhower when Nixon was Vice President. So they were very close and close for a long time. But Kissinger comes in, and he's very thin-skinned, very sharp-elbowed, very egotistical, and he does everything he can to push Rogers out of the way and he's successful at it. And one great story that I have in Fight House is that Kissinger is dating a Bond girl, Jill St. John, and it comes out in the press that Kissinger's dating her. Kissinger goes and complains to Nixon that Rogers, the Secretary of State, has leaked this information. And the truth is that Kissinger himself leaked it, A, so that people would know he was dating a Bond girl, but B, so that he could get a leg up on Rogers by making Rogers look like a leaker. Oh, boy. There, there's a lot of cloak and dagger to this, too, then, isn't there? 
Oh, yeah, cloak and dagger is a key part of it. There's all sorts of ways that people leak by trying to make other people look responsible for the leaks, and that's happened in multiple administrations as I documented White House. Yeah, and, and, you know, again, there's sort of been the characterization by a mainstream press that this is something new or unique to this current administration, but, in fact, as you uh, exhaustively detail inside the pages of White House, this goes way, way back, and I suppose if some of the sources were still with us, we would find that, that, that there were elements of, of this uh, give and take and, and, and battling going on that no doubt reached all the way back to the very first administration. Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there clearly was that kind of fighting in the Washington administration. You look at the musical Hamilton, and it talks about the fights between Hamilton and Jefferson. But what I really, the dynamic I get that really accelerates things is the growth of the White House staff, coupled with the fact that we have this modern media. And Peter Robinson, who was a Reagan speechwriter, said, of course they were fighting in the Reagan administration. We just didn't have Twitter, Twitter, Twitter to talk about it. <laughs> well, I, I sure appreciate you taking some time, Tevi, to be with us today and help to sort of pull back the curtain on this. It is a page-turning, fascinating read. Anyone who is interested in history, interested in politics, or just wants to know what goes on behind the walls of the number one house in America will appreciate this new book. It's called Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump, and um, it's been written by our special guest today, presidential historian, best-selling author, Tevi Troy. Tevi, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me to talk about Fight House. And uh, folks, by the way, can get more information about the book. You can order it online. You can get it through the usual suspects, Amazon.com. You can also get it through uh, Tevi's website at Tevi Troy, T-E-V-I, Tevi Troy dot O-R-G. The new book published by Regnery History. And, of course, Regnery also owned by the very fine people that own this radio station. Our thanks to Tevi Troy, Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Tuman to Trump. 5.30 from KFAX. Let's see what kind of fighting's going on out there on the freeways. Might even be a little bit of rivalry. Who knows? Somebody wants to get home first. Let's find out what's going on as we swing over to the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There was a tremendous sense of, I think, um, genuine relief within the pro-life community when it was announced several years ago that Canada, <coughs> pardon me, that China would finally be abandoning its brutal one-child policy, effectively as promoted at the time, uh, helping to end uh, abortions that were forced on women. Sadly, China simply made a switch, a bait and switch, in a sense. Going from having been a one-child policy resulting in forced abortions for all future pregnancies to now a two-child policy resulting in forced abortions for all subsequent pregnancies. A new film out gives us better understanding as to how draconian even the new policy is. To talk about it, we're joined by Reggie Littlejohn, founder and president of Women's Rights Without Frontiers. And Reggie, good to visit with you again. Oh, thank you so much for having me back, Craig. And thank you so much for informing your listeners about one of the central things I wanted to say about this film, which is that, you know, it starts out by saying the one-child policy ended in 2015, um, and then it ends with all the propaganda for the two-child policy, and it makes it seem as though all, of course, the population control has ended but under the two-child policy, third children are still forcibly boarded, and single women are still forcibly boarded. 
And, in fact, um, the Congressional Executive Commission on China report, which was just released on January 8th of this year, says, quote, local-level officials reportedly continue to enforce compliance with the family planning policies using methods including heavy fines, job termination, and coerced abortion. So it's still going on today. And, you know, the, the irony, of course, is that some within leadership in Beijing, they're, they're very proud about all this. Uh, some have boasted that this has helped to prevent millions and millions of births and deal with overpopulation and uh, so forth and so on with, with the scant recognition of the kind of turmoil that this has brought and the tragic loss of life. We know from more recent numbers um, in America, we're looking at upwards of about 61.5 million babies that have been aborted since the tragic Roe versus Wade decision by the Supreme Court in 1973, and recognizing, of course, that in rural areas, it's difficult to get accurate information. It's also difficult to get accurate information out of Beijing. Being a communist country, they tightly control information and wish to paint the picture to whatever seems to be of the advantage of the communist regime. But do we have any sense in terms of just how many lives have been lost, is that 400 million, do you think, accurate? Well, you know, that's a very interesting question because, yes, they did boast that they have prevented 400 million lives, uh, but that was a long time ago. That was, gosh, probably 10 years ago. And now we've discovered that they're having about 23 million abortions a year. Wow. I think the number is, is probably closer to 500 maybe even 600 million. Nobody knows because, as you say, Beijing, you totally cannot trust the numbers that they come out with. And and they did boast about the 400 million. In fact, there was a climate change summit in Copenhagen where one of the heads of the National Family Planning Commission said, boasted that their contribution to the fight against uh, climate change was the 400 million lives that they had prevented. And then they got hammered so hard about that, you know, uh, including by me, <laughs> you know, that they stopped boasting about it. But we know that they've been having about 23 million abortions a year since then, so it's a much higher number, I believe. That, that, that's frightening to think of the proportions of it, and, and, of course, frightening still that a lot of people came to the erroneous conclusion, and I think that this, perhaps for propaganda purposes, was encouraged by the communist Chinese authorities that China, with with much pomp and circumstance, announced that it was abandoning the one-child policy. Uh, dot dot dot. Fine print. We're now moving to a two-child policy. The end results of which, for the next child, is the same: forced abortion. Right, and and and, and another thing is that the sex selective abortion of baby girls has not changed either. So. I want to just tell you a quick story, which is a couple years ago, it was reported that a couple had a daughter under the one-child policy, and they thought that they were one and done. But then China moved to a two-child policy, and so the husband said, let's have another kid, let's have a boy. And he forced his wife to abort four baby girls in a year, and then she died. So even under the two-child policy, the sex-selective abortion of baby girls is continuing, particularly of second daughters, because when people have a daughter for the first child, many couples 
want abort for that second child, and they will abort and abort and abort until they get that boy for the second and, child. And I think it's important, Reggie, that, that you're pointing this out, because I, I don't want to seem as if we are entirely putting the responsibility of these staggering numbers just on communist authorities that say we're trying to control the population, so it's one and done. Now it's two and done. But recognizing that beyond the government involvement, um, people, the population of China has some degree of culpability here, too. You know, it, it's at a level logical from, from a cultural standpoint. You want to have a male heir to pass uh, your, your, your family's wealth on to and the heritage and so on and so forth. But as Reggie, you point out, okay, that's fine if you have the one child or two children and one is a boy to be a male heir, then you're you're good to go. But what happens if the first two children are both baby girls? When you get to number three, do you abort it? Or even when you get to number two, do you choose to abort it in an effort to hope that the third one is going to be a boy? That's pretty frightening. Well, it is. And, and so that's why China has a situation where they've got an estimated 30 to 40 million more men than women living in China. And that Male, the, the, de- the deficit of women is causing human trafficking and sexual slavery on a massive scale within China and from the surrounding countries. Uh, countries. So um, that's why we, we have a Save a Girl campaign inside of China. We're the only organization in the world that has a network on the ground inside of China that's actually able to save baby girls from sex-elective abortions. Um, so we, we are able to get to the doors of women who are being pressured to either abort or abandon their baby girls or who are under so much financial stress that they might just have to abandon their baby girls and, and say to them, congratulations on your daughter. Girls are as good as boys. We will offer you a monthly stipend for a year to empower you to keep your daughter. And we've saved hundreds of baby girls that way. And we're changing the culture in the villages. Where, where women are, are less likely now to actually try to uh, abort or abandon their baby girls because of the positive, uh, our positive encouragement concerning girls in our villages. Very important that I think from a from a pro-life perspective, we understand that, you know, we sort of almost exclusively think of the battle enjoined here in America because of Roe, um, but, you know, in some cases, the, the battle lines are even greater in countries like China, where, my goodness, you're talking potentially of 10 times the number of abortions we've had here in America. The film One Child Nation, you recommend from an educational standpoint uh, to be valuable to see. Is it available yet online, do you know, Reggie? Yes, it, it is. Uh, so the only place I could find it is it's on... Um, it's on Amazon Prime, okay? okay? You can get it on Amazon Prime. Somebody told me it was on Netflix, but I'm not a member of Netflix, so I don't know. But I would highly recommend seeing this film, even though it starts out with this sort of misleading uh, information that China ended its one-child policy in 2015, and it, it talks about China's dark past without talking about China's dark present. But nevertheless, the filmmaker was absolutely brave and brilliant in in. And bringing down to a personal level that, that number we've been discussing, the 400 million to 500 million lives prevented, how they did that in her village and how they did that in her family. And I don't think anybody else could, could make a better and more fat, powerful film about the atrocities, number one, of coercive population control, and number two, of communism itself. Reggie Littlejohn. 
founder and president of Women's Rights Without Frontiers. Information on the web, and she mentioned, and I want to sort of underscore it, uh, what they're doing to uh, to provide help and support and, and literally rescuing a lot of women. There, there is the, 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 the abuse of sex trade going on, uh, along with the implications of coerced second abortions. And uh, to be able to step in and help women in that situation is not something that ought to be held exclusively here to the United States, but we need to employ uh, these tactics in providing help and support to women everywhere. And on the front lines doing just that is Women's Rights Without Frontiers. Check them out. Support them online. Women'sRightsWithoutFrontiers.org. That's Women'sRightsWithoutFrontiers.org. And our thanks to Reggie Littlejohn founder and president of Women's Rights Without Frontiers, for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. 545. Get an update for you on traffic from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. What to say, what to say. That often is the challenge for a lot of believers as we are sharing our faith with others. Now, we know certainly that there's um, uh, sort of a dualistic component when it comes to uh, the whole matter of being a Christian. Certainly, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, body, and soul, and our neighbor is ourself. And we are also to go and to share the good news of this gospel into all of the world, uh, the great commandment and the great commission. And yet, for a lot of us, uh, the great Great um, commandment, yeah, we we can do okay with that, but we find ourselves oftentimes challenged, particularly in this day and age, in fulfilling our responsibility in partaking in the sharing of the Great Commission. Um, That sense of sharing your faith with someone who wishes to be combative, they want to get into an argument with you, you are fearful perhaps because you just don't want confrontation, you've never experienced sharing your faith with someone before, and you're afraid to open up the proverbial can of worms because there's this atheist in the next cubicle that's just been dying to pick a fight with you. How do you go about sharing your faith under these circumstances, particularly in a region like the San Francisco Bay Area where we are wrought with paganism and atheism and doubt and those that would feel as if anybody who believes in Christianity or the Jesus of the Bible must clearly be nuts. Well, Donald Johnson joins us to offer insights. He's written a new book called How to Talk to a Skeptic, an easy-to-follow guide for natural conversations and effective Apologetics And, Donald, great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks for having me, Craig. I appreciate it. You come at this from a very rich educational background. I'll mention for the benefit of listeners, you have a B.A. in theology um, from San Jose Christian College, so you've been here in the Bay Area, an M.A. in Christian apologetics from Biola University, and an M.A. in theology from Franciscan University of Steubenville. So you've you've gone to some pretty well-known schools and received quite the deep education. Now, sharing this whole topic of apologetics, some Christians hear that and they kind of get put off and they go, oh, that's for an expert. That is for somebody like Hank Hanegraaff or um, somebody like a Donald Johnson to engage in. I, as just the everyday average Christian, can't possibly be expected to engage a skeptic in some discourse of Christian apologetics, can I? (laughs) Well, I think if you approached it that way, that you have to have the big uh, education um, yeah, you're right. We probably wouldn't, and that's one of the uh, problems. But no, I wrote the book specifically to address people who don't have the education, who 
uh, don't necessarily have the conversational debating skills of a William Lane Craig or someone like that. They're not interested in getting into the combative argument. Uh, no, this is this is for people who you know have that uncle who comes over on Thanksgiving and has a lot of questions or that coworker, and it's specifically addressed to show you that yeah you can have a constructive conversation with even the most. Uh, hardened skeptic. And I guess at the end of the day, Don, this is not really about engaging in debate um, or demonstrating our um, uh, verbal skills at confrontation. Uh, it really comes down to that core issue of being ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, Craig. That's exactly when I think of apologetics. It's First Peter 3.15. It's the verse you just quoted. It's just having um, good questions and then the good answer, the, uh, the, the understanding of the Jesus story that you can share with people, but doing it in a way that's not going to lead to a dead end. So what is it about us as Christians, particularly in this day and age, and you've spent a good time here in the San Francisco Bay Area, so you're fully aware of, of some of the, the intellectual prowess of our Bay Areans here who uh, tend to um, uh, celebrate paganism and uh, atheism and, and uh, love to engage in barbed uh, debate with Christians and, and, and tear us down. Does some of this fear come out of a sense that, well, we, we're trying to avoid confrontation, um, we're, we're concerned we won't be able to articulately respond to their questions or their comments, and, and maybe a good dose of our own sense of anxieties in all of this? I just wonder how much of this goes to just the heart of a lot of believers today being uh, biblically illiterate and, and finding themselves and feeling themselves unprepared to share their faith. Yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of it is that we don't feel like we have those answers. But on the other hand, it's partially, I think, some mistakes that we make in approaching the skeptic that leads us into that defensive position. So, I mean, we're scared that we're not going to have the right answer. But I think in my approach, I've learned over the years, I mean, I used to be that guy. I used to be that guy who just liked to debate and always tried to have just the right answer and just the right comeback at, at the right time. And I learned over the years that doesn't actually usually end very well. You usually end up in a roadblock. And so now I, I stand back a little bit and ask a lot of questions at the beginning and try to listen a lot and move the, the conversation in a direction where you're not on the defensive all the time and you don't have to have all those answers. And you're actually trying to get the skeptic to do the thinking and to have some answers for their own views and how they understand the world and how they understand Christianity. So it's not so much, you're right, it's not so much that it's a battle between two people, but a constructive relationship-building conversation where both sides have to add something to the mix. Sadly, oftentimes these kinds of conversations end up in one feeling as if they have to defend the faith, meaning they're, they're, they're put on the defensive, and so here we might feel um, wholly short to answer challenges concerning the, uh, certain scientific points or uh, points related to uh, observations about so-called uh, errancy in Scripture, things of this sort. I mean, oftentimes we'll see this sort of distown, distilled down by some as a debate between um, faith or science, for example, or or the rational or irrational. So you're, you're not suggesting that we, we engage to set ourselves up for debate, but rather, what, engage a person? Is this as much about sharing our faith? Is it also getting the person that we're talking to to get them to share their heart and where they're coming from? 
Yeah, I think that's the key is, first of all, to, to understand where they're coming from. And so on two levels, well, really on three levels, I ask them what kind of background they have. You know, tell me a little bit about your life and if you have any experience in Christianity or the Church. And then I ask them what they think uh, to be true about the world as far as uh, how do you answer the big questions of life. I understand that you reject Christianity. Okay, tell me what you do accept, though. Give me a positive case for something that you think is actually true not just what you think is false. And then I ask them what they think Christianity actually teaches. And I think if you set out your conversation just just trying to find out those three uh, facts about the person in a very relational way and doing a lot of listening and not not defending Christianity at all, not jumping in when they throw an objection or or some sort of uh, sarcastic comment, you know, just, just let that go and just listen. And what ends up happening is you can develop a comparison of worldviews. So way down the line, after you've learned a lot about the person, it's, it's given you a chance to then compare the Christianity that you know to be true from the Bible with their worldview and the Christianity they hold. And, and you'll inevitably find out that they don't hold to the Christianity that you do, that they're rejecting a, a, a straw man argument or they're just a caricature of what the Bible teaches. And when you set it up like that, you ask a few questions, you set up a comparison of worldviews, it actually does give you a chance to come in and then share the gospel, but not in a preachy way. You're just clarifying what Christianity actually teaches. You can say, oh, well, that's interesting. I understand where you're coming from, but let me share with you how I understand the Bible and how I understand Christianity, and then we can, uh, we can talk on that level. So it's a lot of clarification and sharing the Bible, or sharing the gospel, then in a non-confrontational, very relational way. You use a word that I want to have you elaborate upon when we return after a timeout. You use the word relational, and I think there can be some important insights and keys extracted from this one word as we talk about how to talk to a skeptic. My guest is Donald Day Johnson. This is his new book, by the way, newly published by. To put my cheaters on here, Bethany House, and you'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Jarrell is laughing in there. Hey, you reach a certain age, kiddo, you know, you, you got to put the cheaters on. Also, the book available through Amazon.com, and uh, we'll share more in our conversation. Dig a bit deeper into this topic. How do you go about successfully sharing your faith, giving that answer for the hope that lies within as you talk to a skeptic? 